Okay, can we go to Romans chapter 9 tonight, please? Romans 9. As promised, one mass of clay is the name of the study tonight. Which is interesting if you consider Adam being fashioned from the clay and embodying all of humanity. So I just gave away the punchline of tonight's message. Romans 9, 15, in a couple of moments, silent prayer. Is there a reason you're wearing that Houston hat tonight, Gary? Do you really? They're doing pretty good, you know. What's that one? They might, well, I don't know. I think Boston's going to be a tough team to beat. And I see the Yankee hat and my condolences. I told my sister, she's a lifetime Boston Red Sox fan, that if they beat the Yankees, I'm going to root, I'm going to pull for Boston. So, humbling experience. Actually, I did go to, to show how young I am, I did go to Fenway Park and saw Ted Williams. Bat, even. He didn't do anything that day, but he, was up, he stepped up to the plate. All right, let's take a couple moments. Silent preparation. Father, we're grateful for this opportunity as we're grateful for every opportunity that you afford us to gather in this place and any other place in the name of our Savior, Christ Jesus. May we not take it for granted that wherever two are gathered, two or three are gathered in his name, that he is there in an extraordinary way. And that the Holy Spirit is present to guide us into all truth. And so, Father, we pray that you will be the master teacher tonight. As our Lord Jesus said, quoting Isaiah, they shall all be taught of God. And as Jesus predicted, the Holy Spirit will come, the spirit of truth. And he will guide you into all truth, show you things to come. And he will glorify me, for he will not speak of himself, but of what he has received from my Father and I. So, Father, what I communicate tonight, may it not be from me, but from you and your Son, Jesus Christ, through the Spirit. Use it to edify your body, your church. Use it to encourage, to enlighten And even to save our souls, for the engrafted word has that power. And we approach the word with that confidence and that gratitude tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the 99th hour. Welcome to it. In Romans, the epistle, which I've also called Romans, reading Romans with the light on. 99th increment. Our design for this, really, fourth phase of teaching Romans, I have alpha phase, gamma phase, and now we're on the delta phase, alpha rather, alpha, gamma, beta, and gamma phase. Now we're on the delta phase. Our design, or my design for the delta phase of reading Romans with the light on is found in Ephesians 2.4, and that's... The design. Ephesians 2 4 talks about God's great mercy or his richness in mercy, rich mercy, and the abundance of his love. And the love gives birth to the mercy. And so we're dealing with the two central portions of Romans Romans chapter 5, chapters 5 through 8, which deals with his great love. Romans chapters 9 through 11 deals with his richness of mercy or his abundant mercy. 
So the passage reads in Ephesians 2.4, But God, who is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. That tells the story of the two central sections of Romans. Romans chapters 5 through 8 generally speaks of the great love with which God loves us. And the doctrine peaks first at Romans 5.8, and it culminates at Romans 8.31 and 32. If you look at Romans under another analogy as a mountain range, there are certain peaks of, that jut out above others. One of them, in fact, the central peak is Romans 8.32, 8.31 to 32. God is for us is the central declaration of Romans That's where we've been pressing from the left and the right flanks. 32 says he's for us all. The second highest peak and the second high peak in Romans is 11.32. And that has to do with God showing his mercy to all. In both cases, all is a word that's highlighted. God is for us. If God is for us, who can be against us? And God did not spare his only son as he spared Abraham's only son, Isaac, but freely handed him over on behalf of us all. Romans 11.32, God's plan all along was to consign all of humanity under disobedience, which is really the disobedience of unbelief, in order to have mercy upon all. All is a key word in Romans. In fact, all is used 77 times in Romans. And it's, therefore, when it's used at these two highest peaks of Romans, I think we ought to, it ought to peak our interest. Romans chapters 5 through 8 then generally speaks of the great love with which God loved us, peaking first at Romans 5, 8, where it says God commended his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. And then culminating at Romans eight thirty-one to 32 in the central declaration of Romans that God is for us, that he's freely handed over his son on behalf of us all. The theme of Romans chapters 9 through 11, which culminates at 1132, followed by an extraordinary doxology or a giving of glory to God in Romans eleven thirty three to 36. That theme is the richness of God's mercy. God's great love can be construed as his unrestricted love, God's abundant mercy, his universal mercy. That's the message of Romans. It's the message of the gospel. The gospel isn't the gospel unless it features Jesus Christ and him crucified as the center event of our redemption. But neither is the gospel complete if it does not bring in the universal horizon of that redemptive work of Christ. That it is the redemptive work of Christ is universal. And this is something we're going to bring into clearer focus as we continue in Romans and wind down to the final end of Romans. I'm not trying to do a definitive or exhaustive study in Romans. I'm trying to do a study in Romans that is edifying and refreshing to this congregation and maybe outside of these walls a few feet to others. That's all I'm trying to do. So in Romans 8.32, God gave his son on behalf of us all, Romans 11.32, or keep those two mountain peaks in mind, the twin peaks. God consigned all of humanity to disobedience rooted in unbelief in order to have mercy on all of humanity. The disobedience of unbelief, in other words, gives over to what is called the obedience of faith. The opposite of the disobedience of unbelief is the obedience of faith. And if you remember... Paul's apostolic mission to the nations is related to this goal, as he states it in Romans 1.5. We received, he said, grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith in all the nations for the sake of his name. 
the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of the mystery of God's intention. And the mystery of God's intention is to savingly sum up all things in him, all of creation, all of its times, all of creation, temporally speaking, all of creation, spatially speaking, in Ephesians 1.10. And the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the apocalypse of the mystery, is the means by which right now, in the juncture of the ages, this faith is evoked in people, as Romans 16.25 intimates. In fact, if you're in Romans, turn to the very last three verses of Romans because it constitutes another extraordinary doxology, which is an ascription of glory to God. In verse 25 to 27 of Romans 16, Now to him who has the power to strengthen you by my gospel, Paul says, and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a mystery kept silent for ages of time gone by, but now manifested through the writings of the prophets and made known to all the nations by the commandment of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God through Jesus Christ be glory for the ages to come. Amen. Now, with this in mind, we can progress a little bit in Romans 9, where we actually left off in the middle of Paul's discussion of God's mercy. And we'll pick up with Romans 9.15. For he, God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, says to Moses, and this is all from my translation from the original Greek text here, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and compassion on whom I will have compassion. It's basically God saying to Moses, do you have a problem with that? And there is a challenge going out to Christendom today, to Christianity, that is kind of immune to critique, and it shouldn't be. Do you have a problem with God showing mercy to all people? And if so, why? If you have a problem with God showing mercy to all why? Because here, again, you have to draw an arrow. Romans 9 through 11 hangs together as a single argument, as does the whole epistle. When God says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, if you draw an arrow to 1132, climb up all the way to that peak, God shows mercy to all. So, we have to conclude, do you have a problem with God who shows mercy to who he wants to show mercy, showing mercy to all? I used to have a problem with that. I don't now. Romans nine sixteen. So then it, he's speaking of election here. Election, which is God's preplanned intention to show mercy. Election, it, or mercy, God's mercy, does not depend on a human who wills, nor on a human who runs. It's not a matter of you getting in to salvation through willing, and it's not a matter of you staying in by running. It's a matter of God showing mercy. Why do we have a problem with that? Maybe you don't. It, speaking of election, does not depend on a human who wills, nor on a human who runs, but on God who shows mercy. For the scripture tells Pharaoh, this is actually God speaking through Moses to Pharaoh and saying this, inasmuch as he says this, I brought you into being for this reason, Pharaoh, to showcase my power, by using you, and so that my name will be proclaimed all over the world, literally in all the earth. Now, the Pharaoh thought he was God. He thought he was divine. And so for a prophet of God to tell the Pharaoh that the true God brought him into being for the purpose of glorifying himself through him was quite a challenge. 
And that's in Exodus 9.16, as Exodus 33.19 is quoted in 9.15. Verse 18, so then, as God said to Moses in Exodus 33.19 again, he shows mercy to whom he will show mercy, and he hardens whom he will. He, God, hardens whom he will. And Paul now anticipates an objection, and he heads it off. He anticipates it, and he heads it off. He knows it's coming. Remember, he's been arguing with this false teacher who propounds a gospel of justification by the works of the law since Romans 1.18 all the way through 4.25. He anticipates an objection from this guy. So he says in verse 19, you... That's the teacher or some other objector, maybe some modern person, maybe somebody here tonight, who knows. You may say to me, then why does he still find fault? In other words, if God does the electing through his mercy, and if he hardens whom he will, then how come he has a problem with people who disobey him? How come he still finds fault with people? If it's him that hardens or him that elects, why does he still have problem with people? Why does he still find fault? This is, goes back to Hebrews 8.8. 8. For who can resist his will? But Paul answers in this way, in a different way, in a way that you wouldn't anticipate. He says, on the contrary, who are you, O mere man, to answer back to God? Will the thing that is molded Say to the one who molded it, why did you make me like this? Verse 21, or does the potter have the right to make, please notice this phrase, from one mass of clay, a piece of pottery for honorable use, and another for dishonorable use. In Romans 9, 21 then, please notice that out of one mass of clay, some honorable and some dishonorable vessels are made. You can compare this to 2 Timothy 2.20, where Paul writes there, in the same house, some honorable and some dishonorable vessels. For example, you might have one that's a throwaway vessel. That's what they would call a dishonorable vessel. You may have another one that's a permanent vessel. This speaks of the fact that God hardened part of Israel temporarily. And that's very important. This, again, doesn't find conclusions until you get to Romans 11. There is an election according to to the grace of God, and if it's grace, it's no more works. But God hardened the rest of Israel. Was that forever? No. He said he has hardened them temporarily and in part until something else occurs. That's the bringing in of all the nations. And then God turns to Israel and he kind of remakes the mass of clay again into a vessel of honor. This is a whole argument for universal redemption, universal salvation, for the salvation of all of Israel, the salvation of all the nations. Obviously, anyone who knows Romans 9 through 11 isn't just going to stop here and make conclusions without going to Romans 11.25 because then you'd have to deal with God rebuking you or an apostle rebuking you saying, now let me tell you this mystery so that you're not Wise in your own conceits. We used to call it a legend in your own mind. Wise in your own conceits. That God hardened Israel in temporary and for a part time, part of time of history, until all the Gentiles come in. And then all Israel will be saved. And then all Israel will be saved. All the nations come in. Romans eleven twenty five. that word pleroma means the totality of the people who are non-Jews in all of time. Come in. 
Revelation portrays this in a picturesque way as the gates of the city of the New Jerusalem always open on all sides, never shut. And the nations and the kings of the nations keep in their pilgrimage, they keep coming in. The doors are never shut. That's a picture of the totality of the nations coming in to constitute true Israel, redeemed Israel, saved Israel. So anytime we stop in Romans, and Romans 9 is the place where so many people have stopped, including students of John Calvin, and they've stopped and set up shop right here where it looks like God hardens some permanently and therefore destines them for hell. And they set up shop and call it double predestination. That's tragic that that happened. That's a tragedy. Because Paul is making an argument that climaxes at the peaks I was just telling you about. Mercy on all is what he's talking about. God for us, the human race, the whole mass of clay. He uses that term for many reasons. And one of them is that out of the clay of the earth, God fashioned the man. And that man, Adam, would embody all of humanity. And in that Adam, all would die. That one mass of clay, in that one mass of clay, all would die. But in the second man, not from the earth, but from heaven, all would be made alive. That being the second man, the second Adam, Christ. So Paul's talking about a mass of clay, which is going to be universally redeemed. But in the meantime, he reserves the right to use certain vessels made by that same mass of clay for a so-called dishonorable purpose temporarily. And even that is with a view to his saving purpose. If it weren't for the hardness of Pharaoh, who would have seen the power of God displayed in ten remarkable plagues followed by the splitting of the Red Sea and the marching over on dry land of two million Jews and proselytes, people from other nations, to salvation. And how else would the name of Yahweh be known in all the earth? So in Romans 9.21, note that out of one mass of clay... Some dishonorable, some honorable vessels were made. This speaks of the fact that God hardened part of Israel temporarily. And that's a matter of history, not eschatology. History, not eschatology or end-time prophecy. So that some were hardened and some were made, as he calls it in Romans eleven six, a remnant according to the election of grace and not of works. A remnant that is representative of the whole, eschatologically speaking. Now, what do I mean by the remnant is representative of the whole of Israel? The hardened part of Israel doesn't represent Israel in its final state. What represents all of Israel in its final state of salvation is the remnant, according to the election of grace. That's a forecast of what all Israel will one day be. And so we have to distinguish between history, which I represent this way in my notes, and eschatology. There's a distinction between history and eschatology. God hardens certain vessels, people, individuals, and sometimes even people groups during the course of history. But that hardening does not translate into eschatology which is a final and forever state it never does it never does God chooses to harden certain people in time because their resistance to his will works toward his goal of universal salvation let me give you an example he Romans eleven twenty eight. Again, shooting an arrow forward. Paul says, therefore they, the hardened part of Israel, the unbelieving part of Israel, are enemies for your sake. They are enemies of the gospel for your sake, speaking to the Gentiles, so that the gospel would come to you. But they're beloved because of the patriarchs, 
sake, meaning they're still beloved and their end will be salvation because they're connected to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from whom the Christ was born to encompass them all. So God reserves the right to harden some, not forever, that's eschatology, but during the course of history in order to work his universally saving purpose. Certain cosmic princes were hardened to the point where they crucified the Lord of glory. But if they had known, if they had known, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. If they had known that the effect of their crucifixion of Jesus would be their undoing and their salvation. They never would have done it. So then, principle. Here's a principle that derives from this. The historically hardened part of Israel are not representative of the whole of Israel. That is the eschatological whole. But the historical remnant, according to the election of grace in Romans 11, 5, and 6, is representative of the whole of Israel, eschatologically speaking. Consider once again the remarkable insight of Karl Barth, and I read his commentary a few months ago before teaching Romans or during the early parts of teaching Romans, he wrote on Romans 11.4, he said, the answer of God to Elijah, when Elijah said, I alone am left, they are breaking down your altars, they're doing all this terrible stuff, I alone am left. God answered him and said, I have 7,000. I have reserved 7,000 for myself who have not genuflected their knee to Baal, the false god. This remarkable insight of Karl Barth is true. He said the answer of God to Elijah does not mean that there are a number of men who know God, namely 7,000, but, no, but that there is no limit to the number of those who are known by God. God knows them that are his, says 2 Timothy 2.19. All are his. So we need, and the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it pierces to the dividing asunder of soul from spirit. That means we have to have a division or a differentiation of our consciousness between history and eschatology. It's not a matter of salvation history that Paul is talking about here, but salvation eschatology or salvation Christology. Notice that there is only one mass of clay here. God is the potter in the analogy. This goes back to Isaiah. And also, not only Isaiah 64.8, but Jeremiah 18.6. Remember, Jeremiah was woken in the morning, and God said to him, get on to the potter's shed and watch what he does. And the potter takes a mass of clay and he puts it on the wheel. And he starts to form a beautiful vase or vase or vessel. And then all of a sudden it collapsed on the wheel. And Jeremiah started thinking, well, if this is an analogy to Israel, we're done. But God says, wait a minute, watch the potter. The potter takes that collapsed mass of clay that came into nothingness puts it back on the wheel and fashions from the same mass of clay an honorable beautiful expensive invaluable vessel that's God that's the potter so in history there may be some collapsed vessels but God has one mass of clay it's all of Israel and it's all of humankind and his intention is to fashion a beautiful vessel out of it, despite how it looks during history. So then, God is the potter. Israel, in this case, is the clay, although the application is to all of humanity, one mass of clay. 
because Adam was made from the clay of the earth. God the potter then, Paul is saying, has the right within the realm of his perfect justice to make one vessel for dishonorable or ordinary use and another for honorable or special use during the course of history and to use both the dishonorable vessel and the honorable or special vessel, use them both in the interest of his overall eschatological saving purpose or his will in the end to save all. I'll say that again. God the potter has the right within the realm of perfect justice to make one vessel for dishonorable or ordinary use, in other words, to harden one vessel, and to use another for honorable or special use, the election of Israel, the special remnant, during the course of history, and to use both in the interest of his overall saving purpose, which is to have mercy on all, which is on the whole mass of clay, not only all of Israel, but all of humanity, once in Adam, the man whom God fashioned out of the clay of the earth, the earthly man, Adam, the first man, Adam. In Adam, all die. In Christ, who embodies all in Adam, in his incarnation, all will be made alive. We're all from the same mass of clay. What? There goes gender bias. There goes race wars. There goes ethnicity. There goes bias in which we favor our group and prejudice in which we look at other groups with disfavor. There it goes. It's all dissolved. One mass of clay. Mercy upon all. Romans 9, it also means saved is sanctified and sanctified is saved. It reminds me when I was at the airport one time, a guy came up to me and he said, are you saved? And I said, yes. He said, are you sanctified? I said, most certainly. Because of Hebrews ten fourteen, he has perfected forever those whom he has sanctified and he has sanctified us all through Jesus Christ, for their sake I sanctify myself, he said, John 17, 19. Look at Romans 9, 22. What if God, Paul says, what if God, let's, let's do a hypothetical, we would say today, hypothetical, colon. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make known his power, now, we've shown, Paul's already shown what his wrath is. His wrath is not directed toward you. It's directed toward that which would destroy you. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make known his power, what if he endured with much patience vessels of wrath that were made to throw away, that is, throw away vessels for temporary use. And in order to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. That's a big what if. What if he wanted to do that? But what really struck me here is what Peter said in Second Peter 3.15. He said that Paul in all of his epistles writes on this one theme. You can be sure of it. In all of his epistles, he will write about this one theme. The patience of the Lord is salvation. Second Peter 3.15. In all his epistles, that's a major theme. The patience of the Lord is salvation. So here, if God is going to patiently endure vessels of wrath then that patience must be directed toward salvation somehow. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and make known his power, endured with much patience 
vessels of wrath that were fitted for destruction, or we would say made to throw away. That is, vessels for mere temporary use. And in order to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory. So my question is, didn't God do this? Did he not do this in history? He goes on to explain in Romans 11, 5, and 6, again, firing the arrow forward. It's the only way to interpret this. Interpret Scripture with Scripture. That there is a remnant according to the election of grace, which represents all of Israel, whom God has prepared as vessels of mercy for glory. And that he also allowed, not for eschatological purposes, but within the course of history, to reach his eschatological purpose, he hardened some. The remnant, according to the election of grace, is in history, represents all of Israel eschatologically. The rest, he hardened. He hardened them. But even that was toward to make known his glory on vessels that he had prepared for glory, which is all of humankind, as we'll see. So, He even not only made Pharaoh, not only did he harden Pharaoh, which set up the whole world stage for all the ten plagues and the deliverance of the vessels of his glory through the Red Sea. But he also, in history, actually hardened part of Israel. And that's why the Gentile Christians were saying God has to have rejected Israel because, look at they don't believe in him. They voted for his crucifixion. The leaders, at least, in Jerusalem did. God must have forsaken Israel. And Paul goes on to a a pretty long, maybe a 36-verse rant, starting with Romans 11.1, ending in 36, that God has not forsaken his people Israel. Those that he hardened, a part of Israel, served God's purpose of saving all of Israel only after the totality of the Gentiles comes in. So God's patient endurance. What is he doing now? He's got vessels of wrath. They're fitted for destruction. They're throwaway vessels. It's only temporary. What does he do to them? What does God do? And he wants to vent his wrath, so what's he do? He, he shows his wrath by not venting his wrath. He endures with patience these vessels of wrath. He endures them with patience because his plan is to use them for a saving purpose. It wasn't the election according to grace that said crucify him. It was the hardened part that said crucify him. But what if he was never crucified? I'll let you deal with that one. So God's patient endurance, not judgment of the vessels of wrath, his endurance of them, he put up with them. God's patient endurance of the vessels of wrath is salvation, as Second Peter 3.15 says, as Paul says in all his epistles, but it's salvation not only for the vessels of honor, but also for the vessels of dishonor, both whom he predestined for glory in Jesus Christ. So God showed his wrath by enduring or putting up with vessels of wrath in his patience, And that's the patience of his great love. When Paul describes love, he starts off in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 7, the long definition of love with all of its characteristics. You know how he starts it out? Love is patient. That's the first declaration. So God shows his wrath by patiently putting up with in his love vessels of wrath letting them carry out their purposes in history with a view to his saving purpose for all mankind again i can't emphasize it enough in romans eleven twenty eight, they are that hardened part enemies of the gospel for your sake you gentiles you better be glad because their hardness allowed you guys to come in 
It held the door open for you guys to flood in. But they're also beloved. They're still loved by God because of the patriarchs, meaning they still have a connection to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because through Isaac came Christ. They're still embodied in in him. It's one mass of clay. What if God? Can God do that if he wants to? I think he has. That's my answer to it. It's a little different than what David Bentley Hart wrote in his notes on his New Testament translation, but that's okay. We can disagree and still love each other. So God showed his wrath by enduring vessels of wrath and his patience, which is the patience of his love. The patience of the Lord is salvation. You say, salvation for who in that context of Second Peter 3.15? Salvation for who? Let me tell you who. God is not willing that any should perish. And that willing doesn't mean he doesn't just sit around and say, gee, I hope nobody perishes. His willing that no one perishes means that his intent and his resolution and his determination is to assure that none perish. God patiently waited for me for a long time. I was a vessel fitted for destruction. I was on a path that would have ended in my own self-destruction. Easy. It was going to happen any year, any time. Probably I was, a, I was 21 when he interrupted that self-destruction process. When he intervened in my life, when he broke through the curtain and came into my side of reality and stepped in and introduced himself I was a vessel fitted for wrath. He patiently endured my wrathfulness, my self-destruction, until he said, well, it's time to go in and interrupt his self-destruction and save him. I objected at first, and I said, what do you think you're doing and all the rest of it? But I'm really glad that it wasn't according to my will or according to my running that it was according to God who shows mercy. He didn't ask my permission. Who in the hell do you think you are? Picture this. People are dying in the sea. Someone comes in a rescue boat. He's a Coast Guard guy. He comes in a rescue boat. People are floundering around in the ocean, and they can't hear what he's saying. He's hollering at them from the back of the boat, screaming at them. He's not throwing in any rescue implements at all. He's just screaming at them. And they're saying, we can't understand what you're saying. And then finally the sea slows down a little bit and they get what he's saying. I need your permission to save you. Imagine that. Do I have your permission to save you from an eternal death? He doesn't Who do we think we are? It's not of him that wills, and it's not of him that runs. It's not of him that keeps, it's not of him who wills to believe in the first place, and it isn't of him that keeps on believing and keeps on staying in salvation. It is God who shows mercy. And once you realize that, for the first time, you actually may rest in what we call faith. You may actually be in a thing called believing which produces peace and joy in Romans 15, 13, the last verse in the main body of the epistle of Paul to the Romans. So look at it. Romans 9, 24. Paul says, well, let's go back to 23 just for a moment. In order to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, including us, Paul says which includes himself and all those who are with him in Romans 16 and all those who are saints in Rome, including us whom he has called. And called here means called into existence as a new creation. Not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. We are an example of God saving all mankind. We're the first fruits of that plan of God. The idea is all, including us, Paul says. Some Jews, some Gentiles. Now, the Israel of God consists not only of Jews, but Gentiles upon whom God has had mercy and whom God called into existence as a new creation. That's what Galatians teaches in 6.15 and 16. We'll get there maybe in our next series. He did it at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ in Galatians 6.14. Now, As if to illustrate this, 
illustrate the principle that the potter making from the same mass of clay both vessels of honor and dishonor, Paul brings in Hosea 2.23 and Hosea 1.10, and we've already looked at this on a fateful Sunday, 9.25. As he also says in Hosea, I will call not my people. Who are they? The people whom he hardened temporarily in history and in part. I will call not my people my people. There's history in eschatology. I will call the people that I called not my people in history, my people in the final eschatological moment of the cross and the telos when he comes, the parousia. And in the very place where they were told you are not my people, they will be called in the same place the sons of the living God. So what's he saying? Those whom God called hardened clay or vessels of dishonor or vessels fitted for destruction or headed for destruction. He now calls vessels of honor prepared in advance of history before history. He prepared them for glory. So God has endured with saving patience vessels of wrath fitted for destruction which simply means Israel as temporarily enemies of the gospel. So he's answering the question throughout for the Gentiles who say, well, then how come Jews are enemies of the gospel? And Paul says they're only temporarily enemies of the gospel because God, right within the sphere of his own justice, hardens some of them in order to open the door for you Gentiles to come in. They did you a favor. And then he turns again, remember Ezekiel 36, 9, I will turn to you again and save you. Turn to me, all you ends of the earth, and be saved. I will turn to you. He was always for Israel. This became a pretty big question in the 20th century about did God forsake his people Israel? Because if he did, then let's just add to what God is doing by destroying the Jews. That's exactly the mentality of people who called themselves Christians during the Holocaust, many of them. So where does it go? Where does this thinking go? Doesn't go to the right place, that's for sure. So again, let's shoot the arrow. Even as the Lord endured with much patience, Pharaoh in order to show his saving power toward Israel, now he uses Israel as enemies of the gospel to show his power of salvation to everyone in whom he invokes faith, whether Jews or Gentiles. So let's shoot the arrow and we'll close. Romans eleven eleven. Again, this, this is one of the hardest tasks I've ever done as a teacher because I'm not just teaching a doctrine. I'm showing you how the doctrine pops throughout all of Romans. That's my goal. And this is the 99th time. But if you shoot the arrow forward, the logic forward, just a little bit to Romans 11, 11, Paul says this. And I've already done this in Better Call Paul, and I'm not going to rehash the whole thing again. So that's why I say Romans might wind up quicker than you thought. But in Romans 11, 11, Paul says this. So I, Paul, say this. They have not tripped in order to fall down permanently, have they? He answers his own question. Of course not. On the contrary, by their transgression, by their transgression, salvation has come to the pagans or the Gentiles to provoke Israel to jealousy. Verse 12 but if their misstep, that's paraptoma, which again is the same word he uses for Adam's transgression. So there's a linkage here between Israel's misstep and Israel's future salvation and Adam's misstep and the salvation of all mankind through Jesus Christ in both cases. If their misstep, that's Israel's misstep, their transgression, their rejection of their own Messiah, is bringing riches to the world. The riches of God's mercy is what we're talking about here. And their defeat, he talks here in projection to A.D. 70, when they're defeated by Titus of Rome and the 
city of Jerusalem is destroyed along with the temple. Their defeat means riches for the Gentiles. How much more will their fullness bring them? In other words, their tripping up happened in history so that their fullness would happen in eschatology at the coming of Christ for, the, for all time. The end result will be their pleroma, their fullness. If their fall means riches, the riches of Christ being spread all over the world to all the Gentiles, what do you think their fullness is going to be? In other words, Paul said, you better understand the difference between history and eschatology. God hardens them for history in order to save them in eschatology or in the end time when Christ comes, the parousia, we could call it, the telos, the end. So if their misstep is bringing riches to the world and their defeat riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fullness bring them? So their acceptance is also mentioned here. Let's look at just a little further in verse 13. He says, but now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. In view of the fact that I'm the apostle to the Gentiles, I am expanding the effect of my ministry. That is, my gospel goes to the Gentiles, but now it's overflowing to my fellow Jews. So he says this, if by doing so I may provoke my flesh, that's fellow Israelites, Paul's brothers, his countrymen by physical descent, to jealousy and save some of them. For you see, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Their temporary rejection of their own Messiah means the reconciliation of the world because their rejection of the Messiah is, the, is Christ being made sin on the cross. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Their rejection of Christ resulted in God being in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So how much more will their acceptance mean? Meaning the rejection of Israel presently in history doesn't do away with the fact that they will accept him in eschatology. He's talking all the way through here with the, for universal salvation. Paul is a universalist. Paul believes in universal salvation. He's not a hopeful universalist. He's a convinced universalist. He's persuaded. And he's doing all this so that he can say, you Gentiles who hate the Jews, you Gentile Christians who hate your Jewish brothers, you Jewish Christians who consider the Gentiles to be unworthy pagans because you've been taught by some yokel that you're justified by works of the law, and I'm showing you in Romans 7 that if you try to get a, attempt to get justified by the works of the law, you're going to produce exactly the opposite of righteousness because the law got hijacked by sin. You Jews who are biased toward yourselves and prejudiced toward your Gentile brothers and you Gentiles who think God has forsaken Israel better realize that God is for you all. If God is for us all, then why are you against each other? If God is for us all and gave his son for us all, then why are you against each other? Why do you harbor biases in favor of your own little group and prejudices against this other group? This also translates into all the stuff that's going on in the United States of America today in the most polarized, fragmented time of our history. With one exception, the Civil War. The Civil War began by leaders on both sides telling each other not to be civil to each other. And the Civil War, thank God, was fought to end the evil called slavery. But the divisiveness in our country today could spike into a civil war because you actually have leaders that are telling the people under their leadership to stop being civil to each other. That's like saying instead of what Jesus said, love one another, they're saying don't love one another. 
And, of course, there's people that follow. They're called sycophants. They follow these people. So then, in closing, I see I can easily slide right there. That's slide into a political social commentary. That's not why I'm here. In fact, that's boring to me. I watch about five minutes of the news and get so sickeningly bored that I have to, even if I'm exhausted, I got to go find a book of theology to read to get excited again. It's boring. So the last thing I'll say is there's a similarity to Romans 11 on the right flank of the center with Romans 5 on the left flank of the center. Two missteps. Israel makes a misstep that anticipates Christ's coming and salvation of the Gentiles. Adam makes a misstep, but it anticipates Christ's coming and saving the world. Similarity in Romans 5, the misstep of Adam that brought condemnation and death to all of humankind, the whole mass of clay, did not bring about a permanent situation in mankind. Because of the one surpassing and superseding act of righteousness of the one man, Jesus Christ, so that all of humankind receives life-giving justification in Romans 5.18. Similarly, the misstep of the majority in Israel, whom God hardened, did not bring about a permanent hardening of Israel. So there's another similarity. The condemning misstep or transgression or act of disobedience of the one man, Adam, anticipated the rectifying step or the setting right of step of the one man, Jesus Christ, who is called the eschatological Adam and the coming one. Just as the misstep of Israel anticipated her eschatological recovery, Due to acts, the act of God in Christ, likewise, Adam anticipated Christ in that both men were bearers of the destiny of the entire human race. In Adam, all die. But in Christ, all are made alive. Adam prefigured the one who was to come, that is Christ Jesus, as we saw last night in Romans 5.14 the one who was to come into the world. In Adam's fall, which took down the human race with it and with him, there was an anticipation of the one who would rise after death and take up with him the whole human race. The first Adam, by and whom all human beings die, was merely a prototype of the last Adam by and in whom all human beings are made alive with rectifying life. Romans 5.18, 1 Corinthians 15.22. So consider what Jesus said in John 14.19, because I live, you will live also. Because I live, you will live also. And in John fourteen twenty, in that day you will know that I am in my Father. You are in me, I am in you. The misstep of Israel is like the misstep of Adam because the misstep of Israel resulted in the reconciliation and life for the world as the misstep of Adam anticipated the true obedience of Jesus Christ resulting in the salvation of all mankind. Get the difference between history and eschatology. If we sow to the flesh, we reap a harvest, what? Of corruption. When? During history, during our life and time. If we sow to the spirit, we shall from the spirit reap a harvest, when? Of life both now and into the eternal state. The harvest of misery through our stupid decisions to fulfill the impulses of the flesh, the harvest of misery ends at physical death. 
But the harvest of joy and peace and life and participation with God's livingness is not only for now as we continue in the word of God and continue in our faithfulness to him, but it surpasses and goes beyond the point of physical death into the eternal state to come. Therefore, there will be those who are royally ruling in the eternal state and others who are saved but not ruling. I'm going to leave you with that note, an intriguing one, to show you where we're going next. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We're grateful for the time that you've granted us here tonight. It's difficult. The texts that we've studied tonight in one sense are difficult, but in another sense, when they are given attentiveness, when they're given diligence, when they are looked upon prayerfully and carefully, they reveal, A, your great love, B, your universal mercy. And so nothing in history can move us or cause us panic or anxiety or fear. For we know that it's all working together. Not only for the good of those who love God, but toward the end of making all humanity into lovers of God.